Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective radio program here on KSQD-FM 90.7 Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and for our program today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Santa Cruz poet Charles Atkinson. Charles, or Chuck, has devoted his life to poetry as a poet and educator. He's published five collections of poetry, three chapbooks, and won several awards, including the American Book Series Award for Poetry for his first book, The Only Cure I Know, and the Sow's Book Poetry Chapbook Prize for Because We Are Men. And we'll hear later on the poem that's the titular poem for that book. Chuck is here today with his wife, writer and teacher, Sarah Rabkin, who will step in as needed as Chuck is dealing quite honestly with Louis body dementia. Sometimes the words don't always come when he wants them to. So I really want to welcome you both and welcome Chuck. And thank you for your contribution to poetry and to the Santa Cruz community. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to highlight your most recent book of poems, The New and Selected, which was published this year. And there's several poems in that book from each of your publications, as well as more recent poems. It's really a lovely collection and so nice to see that breadth and depth and the development over the years. And I also thought as I was going through it, notable for your place in the canon, which rises from Whitman through Frost, through Jeffers and lands with you, Robert Haas a little bit too but he's a contemporary, so. But that's a light load, don't you think? Just a light load, yeah, not much to live up to. So what I'd like to do is start off with a poem that uh, is one of your older poems from your first collection, and that that's a poem, if you're willing, is Executive Subcommittee. <laughs> Why would I be unwilling? I, I don't know. You might have had suddenly a, an occurrence of poetry fatigue. Well, I know it's an honest question from you because as you, if you've read around in this volume enough, it's clear that there's a lot of autobiographical and biographical material that I think makes poetry um, possible, but it may not be to everyone's taste to share that. So. We'd love it. I would love to hear this one. I would love to, to read it to you. Executive Subcommittee. A man, gray-haired like me, tells others just how wrong they are and why. Not one to coddle, he sports a silent rictus of disgust or inane comments, sighs at so much twaddle. You ignorant prick, I almost bray on cue. Don't bully those you think are just sincere. It doesn't matter who did what to you. Don't hand down the blame or nurse your fear. Anger turns like that on anger, hurt on hurt. So I'm doodling, casting for daylight, relieved to taste the rage before it's blurted, smug that I might break the cycle outright. 
breathing slower, jotting notes. The same with him. He even answers to my name. So this is a lovely sonnet that's not quite traditional in all its aspects, but it does have 14 lines and it does follow the traditional sonic, sonnet uh, rhyming scheme. But what I noticed about this, apart from this lovely complicity that's in here with the last line, is the rhythm because it's iambic, but then in the turn, in the volta, you've got this these trochees, which, which really highlight that turn in the middle, which is the admonishment to my mind. It doesn't matter who did what to you, don't hand down the blame or nurse your fear. So I would love to hear how you thought of that rhythm with this, or maybe you didn't, I don't know, but I think it's so interesting that we have iambic throughout so much of it. And then that's left behind or, or thwarted in the middle. Um, I want to thank you first for recognizing that it's a sonnet. This is a little litmus test that we do here. <laughs> I should say that I was just reading this poem an hour or two ago, and I've read this poem countless times. This was the first time I recognized, in fact, that it's a sonnet. <laughs> so I think that's a good thing in some ways, that, you know, that the form doesn't get in the way of the spirit of the poem. Um, but then once you do recognize the form, as you did so readily, Julia, it realized how artfully the, the form serves the spirit of the poem. It does, because as you said, we're not necessarily hit over the head with the form. And even the rhyme scheme doesn't really jump out at you. So it's, not even coddle and twaddle, not even coddle <laughs> and twaddle. <laughs> that should have been the given. <laughs> yeah. It should have been. But Anyway, I'll let well, you answer that question about your thinking so, about the poem. Yeah, the larger question that you brought up to me was one of meter and as we share that understanding that in English, it's the dominant mode of sharing, not just poetry, but any kind of innuendo and emphasis can be carried on that meter. Um, by doing just what you're inferring, it just sort of, it's, it shifts gears in a minute for the, that last phrase or that last word. And Hopefully, it lands on words that matter. Um, and in this one, I think, I'm not sure whether it does or not, but I like the way that the banality of same and name as a, as, as a rhyme. Yes, as a rhyme. See, that was easy, but it's not always easy. By getting that emphasis there, you have to pay more attention. And I think some readers don't even get the understanding of the poem that this the self talking to this self in third person uh, in first person actually and, uh, and and we don't really get that until until that that last line yeah so, so it carries both the weight of the poem's understanding and the closure of the the lines so i had to do some movement of syllables in the first in the 
penultimate and the ultimate line in order to have it scanned the way I would like. And I also appreciated how it brings you right back up to the title executive subcommittee, you know, so this is this third person talking to the self or the first person talking about a third person who is actually the self makes that subcommittee even more make makes it richer. And then you have this understanding about the dialogue that's going on. Yes, nicely said. And one of my pleasures to depend on that title for the for the poem because I think it it needs that extra help to the irony and the the bad feeling that goes with it. This was from your book, The Only Cure I Know. So this was the early nineties or late eighties poem, I'm imagining. Yeah, that was back before I was a grown up. Yeah. When did that happen, by the way? <laughs> well, I can extrapolate. Well, it's it's a lovely poem. You're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and today we are talking with poet Charles Atkinson, who has here with him his wife, Sarah Rapkin. Rapkin, I said that like it was a P, like Rapkin, who's a writer and teacher. I think, Chuck, that many of your poems pay attention to the nuances um, in family and relationships. Not all of them, but there's a good a good chunk that have that as its theme. And uh, often combining the lyrical with the narrative, but they they do so with this compressed, forthright restraint. I like that repressed and foresight. It's a nice tension. Com- compressed, compressed. Compressed and forthright. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I'm wondering if for us, you would next read What Angel, since it is dealing with a certain relationship. Yes, I'd be happy to. What angel? Just deep in Lake Tahoe's breathless cobalt, my oldest decides to make his to take his stand. No longer content to be dunked, shrieking like his brother, who expects to be heaved away over and over. This silent pillar has planted his sturdy legs wide in the restless stance he knows. We lock fingers, press palms, and I'm stunned by the hard strength come into him so quickly he hasn't claimed it before. Should I be surprised? Both back from a week at camp, it was enough to quick squeeze me at the neck while his brother still leapt into my spread open arms and hung on. Now these arms are shaking, two drawn bows. We lean in what looks to his mother on shore, like a clumsy embrace, but we know as a slow grinding, neither one of us can break till I slide a leg behind to throw him over a hip and quick have to drop my weight to, like his to keep being tossed. Only my extra pounds and years practice. Let me catch his leg at last, upend him with a grunt that sears my throat. He turns it to a graceful dive, comes up smiling, though his chest is scratched, to fling handfuls of bottom sand 
that hiss just short on the water. Not a blessing, but a truce. Thunderheads are bulking down the valley. The scarred ledges above Emerald Bay waver in the heat. I'm wheezing and sometimes something aches out of joint down low. I weave into shore, drop on the hot sand, its grit a comment, a comfort on my cheek. The world is whirling past west. I loved him as a child. I may learn to honor this figure against the sky, whose shadow falls across my sunburnt back will throw me down next year and hold me under just long enough. Today, I know what he wants, and I'm not ready to let it go. I don't want to see him for a while. Thank you for reading that, Chuck. This poem has a lot of tension in it, of course, and I think that it is so honest in what it's portraying. You know, sometimes we stand on a precipice with those we love, especially our children as they're moving from childhood to adolescence. And this poem stands on that precipice, I think, but especially that last line, I don't wanna see him for a while. It's so raw and such a frank dismissal that I think many parents often feel, but often goes unexpressed for that notion that we will be a quote unquote bad parent if we have these kind of thoughts, feelings. So I appreciate the complexity in this poem that seeks to illuminate that precipice that we are often on in relationships or that we can come to in relationships where we are tugged by that sense of, you know, I don't really like this person right now. It's definitely not an ode, this poem. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this one, which by the way is in six stanzas of six lines or a six line stanza, which is a Seth Dane. There's not a rhyme. There's not a meter in this. Um, it's definitely free verse. So t tell us about this one, Chuck. Oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is just briefly is that is the, again, the title. It's you're a master at getting us, getting the reader to that last line, which demands we go back and look at the title. So I don't want to see him for a while. And then what angel, which doesn't have a question mark after it. So it's it's more of a what angel. <laughs> I'm so glad that you got that emphasis. Tell us about this one. Well, it's not easy to talk about either, just because it's my poem. But it's been with me for a long time now and grown and moved on as um, actual human beings in such a way that this it's no longer quite the poem it was it's, it's um of course it or it portrays this moment in time yeah it's a moment that i am familiar with this particular event in the way i felt with it didn't always 
pan out as simply and as directly as I wanted with this poem. And so it was a long time before I got the last sentence into this poem. I set it away for probably months, if not years. Um, and that's a, that's a case for many of the poems that I write. Some of my colleagues are astonished at how slowly I write. Uh, that's, uh, I think often though, that is the case with poetry, that it takes a lot of distance to, not, not only physical distance, but really the distance of time to come to understand and reckon with those sentiments, those feelings that we had, much less to get them in a form or get them in a syntax or get the, a particular combination of words together that can get us closer to what in fact we were feeling thinking at the time yeah the feeling is um, better served by being patient for it to come around uh, on its own time so i waited uh, i should also say that um, my family, each member of my family is uh, astonishingly generous and supportive of my using of their ersatz lives. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, part of a, an organic milieu that changes with time and experience, but it's taken the better part of 20 years to claim that for this poem mm. and feel that I can do it safely and honestly without being um, a prying of somebody else's reality. Mm -hmm. um, Could yeah. I ask a question about that? Of course. It, I appreciated what you said about the daring in a way, the breaking of taboos that's required um, in order to set down that final line of the poem to acknowledge a feeling that um, isn't the kind of isn't the part of parenting that one generally takes up for show and tell. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see him for a while. And so I it occurs to me to wonder, Chuck, if you if you had some trepidation about even setting those words to paper and then about reading the poem in public when you when you first began to share it trepidation at every step the, what kept me going though was the responses that i got from readers or listeners they to a person i would say almost at least or at least i can't think of any um opposing response. Um, I have been greeted with tears pouring down, shaking, every manner of saying, that was the most important thing that happened to me today. And each person had their own way of expressing that, what they were saying to me, even if it was a uh, three-person audience, um, was... I recognize this moment um, and I'm familiar with it. And it's the first time I've actually been able to hear it and, and allow it. And it has gone for, gone for me for those 20 years as somehow processed in such a way that 
when it was shared, it was supportive and helpful and not manipulative or untruthful in some way. I think that there is great power in acknowledging some of those darker shadow elements of our our lives that we often bear alone. That's the poet's job often is to recognize and highlight those as part of our humanity and it creates a shared community around that. Yeah, nice. You're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD FM 90.7 Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we're talking here today with Chuck Atkinson, Santa Cruz poet, and his wife, Sarah Rabkin, also a writer and teacher. Chuck, you've written, especially in the most recent poems that are, some of the most recent poems that are in this new and collected poems about your diagnosis of Lewy body dementia. And of course, that's something we, we all deal, and especially poets all deal with the fact that death is looming. So it's looking over our shoulders and hopefully informing our lives and hopefully for the better. We're trying to, as poets, we're trying to make sense of that. What makes what makes a life and how should we be focused in that life in order to make it a life that we feel good about? So I, with those thoughts in mind, I would like to turn now to another poem, Flight. This is from uh, Chuck's collection of poetry, This Deep In, which was published in 2017. Flight. Something amiss at landing gear, divert to Dulles, longer runway, seasoned firefight crews down there. Now bear woods, its dust, black lace of plowed county roads, house lights, house dusting hilltops. Precious partner gripping a hand, these decent people almost in reach of those who wait below. We bank into the landing pattern. There are fire trucks, fireflies pulsing against the runway while we lumber in through shreds of fog, ease down toward tarmac, the sigh engines make backing off. And this surprise, how few regrets. Rear wheels touch, the nose comes down, no drift, no shriek of metal on pavement, cartwheels, sweet jet fuel or fireball, no, we ease down to a stop as red lights throw beyond the windows, a warm glow on the luggage bins, and in the quiet, sobs, giggles, low chatter, bubbles rising, everything we turn to, dear, as if we live this way. This poem just kind of kills me. It's, it's, I just love this poem. And, you know, I, I think um, this one is one of those ones that gives me that sense of Jeffers a little bit more. So really appreciate the the intention here. And I love the Volta in here, which comes just about halfway through. 
and this surprise, how few regrets. And then at the end as well, the way this is ending, everything we turn to dear, as if we'll live this way, which anyone who has been through a frightening experience like that can relate to. There is that sense of relief, exaltation, appreciation, intimacy that's created in that situation. And then a day later, we're back to our normal lives and we're petty, we're impatient, <laughs> all of the things that belong with being human. So I am wondering, my question for me, for you is, is with what's going on in your life right now, Chuck, is this, are you feeling more able to live that way that's indicated in those last lines? I think so. Yeah, I think I do. I wonder in some ways if Sarah would be a better respondent to this. <laughs> Being on the outside looking in. Uh-huh. Anything about that? I absolutely think so. And I think that Chuck has lived most of his life with that um, deliberate intention to remember again and again about mortality and to know that this moment we're inhabiting right now is really all we have. Um, and to be aware and forgiving of our human foibles and that it's natural as you suggested, Julia, to revert from a, a, a life and death moment like this back to a kind of complacency and a forgetfulness about the preciousness and finiteness of life, and yet also to continue to wake up. And I see it in Chuck's poetry and in the way he lives in general and the way the way that you are living in response to this illness and this diagnosis. That's an incredible tribute, Sarah. To both of you, really. An unsolicited ad. <laughs> yeah, the genuineness of that is is really, it does evoke those last two lines, really, in this poem. The fact that that's the way that all of us would prefer to be living, as if each moment is going to be our last. But it's very, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, that's why I appreciate so much your your courage and your bravery in bringing these poems, this book of poems in particular, to readers and for being so honest and forthright about this transition that you're in right now. Thank you for that. This is uh, back, back to flight with there's so much lyricism in this poem too. Uh, trucks, fireflies pulsing beside the runway, no drift, no shriek of metal on pavement, cartwheel, sweet jet fuel, or fireball. No, we ease to a stop. It's just a, a beautiful little poem. And as I said before, this is from This Deep In, which was published in 2017. A lovely one for many reasons. 
You are listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD FM 90.7. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and today we're talking to poet Charles Atkinson and his wife, Sarah Rabkin, also a writer. You can follow the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen at any time. And if you're a Spotify, iTunes person, uh, any place you get your podcasts, you can listen there as well. If you'd like to receive our tri-yearly newsletter, please go to hivepoetry.org and subscribe. We'd love to tell you what we're up to. So the next poem I'd like to turn to, Chuck, is a longer poem. Talk about complex. This one's complex. As I said earlier, it's the titular poem in your chapbook, Because We Are Men, which was published in 2006. And to my mind, uh, the poems in this chapbook are an homage to the struggles, the desires, the complications, the dignity of men. Before you read it, I'm wondering if you'd share about how that book came about, that chat book came about, Because We Are Men. Well, it's a, it's an annual contest, national contest for a chat book. And I entered that contest. contest, thank you several times before I won it, um, which was a good experience in its own in its own self. Was this the Sousier yeah. contest? Sousier. In brief, that's how it came to be. And I I got good advice after the first version and the second version and third they kept changing modestly. And at some point I had a former contestant who had won the prize writing a letter to the press saying why did you overlook this guy last year? He's better than the rest of them. And I sort of got caught in the middle. Could I ask you something about it? Yeah. When you entered this chapel contest, had you just noticed that you had accumulated a chapbook's worth of poems that spoke to questions about masculinity and about being male in this culture? Um, or had you deliberately set out to accumulate enough poems of that nature to create a chapel? The former. Just, it happened it happened. When, it happened as it was ready. I have never been good at writing on demand. Um, somehow I become recalcitrant and grumpy. So. Resistant to authority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even your own. So I have to sort of forget that it's all happening, that it's slowly piling up like dandruff or something. <laughs> But I did want to affirm the, your reading of this as a thematically con complete um, volume. I, I, I really appreciate that that was noticeable. And I wanted to share with you a little anecdote that happened just earlier today. when I was gathering um, some, some of these books to look at and have choices among. And... Let's see, how did it go? Oh, I have, this is my third engagement, let's put it that way, since um, this 
volume has come out and has been one that I have picked my favorite poems to advertise. So there's a, there was a Zoom reading a couple of weeks ago. There was this one coming up. And then there's the book launch uh, on Saturday and, and at Cabrillo. And I only noticed as I was gathering those things up in my hands that, that every single poem in this pool was driven by testosterone in some way. It the, was the poems the you poems, chose to share yeah. or the ones you left behind? The ones you did not choose to to share in these public events? No, there were ones that I chose, uh -huh. but not so that I would have any duplicates um in the area if I were to do any more readings. I don't want people to say, oh we heard that one last time. So I if I had I couldn't have done a more complete job to gather together all my male-centered poems, even ones that have parenting and all, all kinds of things. Desire, right. Desire, fidelity, aggression, regrets, everything. It it all goes through that too. So anyway, that's by way of background. So I I have written myself into poetry of family in the largest sense, I guess. So I'm eager to see what's going to happen now. Yeah. <laughs> so did you want to read, want me to read this poem? Yes, would you? I would. It's a long one, and I would like to enlist, before we begin, Sarah's uh, help on at least one of these sections. There's three Absolutely. sections, and if we take our turns... Um, Do you want me to read the second section? It would probably be good, okay. since we talked about that. Okay. So Sarah will join me in reading it. Good. Because we are men. One, awake. These dog whooping, these war whooping days, we retrieved the paper, dog-eared on steps in the damp, and spread it first thing on the counter with coffee. What is it that rivets us to carnage before politics, bitter amusement, comics, even sports. Page one, or helicopter downed in the desert, engine failure, and entire crew. We dip our flags, a tragedy. Our president, heartbroken, visits the homes in Vermont, in Kopke, assures the old and soon to be old. Each body bag is cared for. Some stand limp, pat placards at a, co at a corner. Honk if you love peace. They dance for a wave. Some pick at the post office. No one burns the recruiting office. Where, where were the remains? In what positions did they die? It's the details that finally seduced us. Two, eastbound. Above Chamonix, the B-52s refuel, headed for desert targets. Farmers rise in the dark, wood stoves kindled, tea water sings, milking time. Hearing a rumble, they look upslope to the sleeping massif, a good year so far, no slides. Please, God. Already dawn in the fishing village on Crete. At the bakery window, a boy stands on one foot, choosing, turning the coins over and over. 
At the sound, he squints up. Silver winks in a blue deep as a headache. He decides on baklava. Outside Baghdad, the mind stops. Won't confront the smoldering tanks. Treads flopped off. Big sandbox toys. Stench of hair and nails at a broil. Won't look inside at the harvest of justice. The boiled fruits of freedom. But it does. They live by a bridge on the Tigris. Strategic route. She wakes to glass caving in. The children rush toward her and past, wearing shirts of flame. Dust rises from where the stairway was. The screaming stops. Where are the children? Five hundred baked while they slept in a shelter. Stretchers carry their charcoal into the light, whether we imagine it or not. They keep coming, piled on flatbeds, carried through the throngs. Is this what we want to know, why we read on? Three, on target, more ugly still. Because we are men, we know. When slate dark, the phantoms lumber to the runway, nose to tail, lift off and shudder the earth for 20 miles, the general will call it history in the making. And even though it will shake us awake years from now on an August night, still, to imagine we are what makes a desert quake for hours on end, nothing besides tumescence or death's husky whisper brings a man so alive. Throbbing east under quiet stars, we're the ones chosen to cull friend from foe on an amber screen. A line's been drawn and crossed. Who will deliver the promise? Difficult feelings drop away. Go on. We hum an old song, brothers, sisters. Careful not to think of those down there who will vaporize, astonished, before they imagine what rains from the cipher we've become in a white noon sky, pure, potent, far ahead of our incandescent trail. Thank you. That is, that is a devastating poem. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD FM 90.7 Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we have been listening to the poem, Because We Are Men, by Charles Atkinson who is assisting him in the reading of some of these poems uh, by Sarah Rabkin, his wife, and who's a fellow writer and teacher. Yeah, this poem doesn't turn away from the kind of charge and vitality that's created by this confluence of power, sex, and death that's evident in this poem. And I mean, you know, that the second stanza in the third section is, it practically shouts that, quote, to imagine we are what makes a desert quake for hours on end, nothing besides to messens or death's husky whisper brings a man so alive. 
that says so much right there. And yet this, this rush of, as you said earlier, testosterone really driven compulsion, vitality, seeking of, of life and glory and power is interwoven with the sense that we can't look away from it. We are these, all of us are opening the newspapers and we're riveted to this, which I'm imagining, and this is a, uh, because of the B-52s in the de desert and when this book was published that we're talking about Afghanistan. Um, earlier than that. Earlier. Iraq. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this that last stanza about the children in the second section is is very difficult very but so real that 500 children baked while they slept in a shelter stretchers carry their charcoal into the light whether we imagine it or not they keep coming piled on flatbeds carried through the throngs is this what we want to know why we read on. So I'm wondering if you could talk about this reckoning that you're doing with this poem uh, and what discovery you you made while writing it. I have to say I was, had a, just an explosion inside of rage and helplessness that just doesn't go away. I understand. It's whatever we do, it's still been done. Anyway, that was just a preface. No, thank you for that. It's hard to continue to see this kind of imagery again and again and again and again and wonder why, as a species, we continue to repeat this cycle. Yeah, for the most part, over the years, over the decades now, since this poem is out in the world, that it was my small way of contributing to some other vision, some other voice besides that kind of celebration. Um, generally, I think I still believe that, but I have to say, after this last few moments, I'm not at all convinced of its efficacy, if it still has that kind of impact on me, at least. In what way? Well, I, th I think most of my poems, you can con confirm this if it would help, be helpful for you, but most of my poems work, I think, under the tacit premise that to shine a light where there hasn't been one and where it's worth looking more fully and more deeply and more honestly then that's the, the help that I can bring to, as you pointed out, the scenarios replicate themselves forever, as far as I can tell. So I don't know, quite honestly, I don't know what the, the process of self-honesty and asking honesty of others has been, what has been a lifeline for me but I'm not at all convinced that it does more than that. I don't know. I can I can identify with that. And I particularly am riveted by this poem's doing exactly what you just said, shining a light on places that we don't 
like, or we don't, not that we don't like, but we don't look, we don't necessarily pay attention to those places, which are the interstices, if I'm pronouncing that right, between that kind of glory and power and the destruction that those kind of efforts can engender. And I think that that's what's here. And especially in that last stanza, we hum an old song, brothers, sisters, careful not to think of those down there who'll vaporize, astonished before they imagine what reigns from the cipher we've become in a white noon sky, pure, potent, far ahead of our incandescent trail. It's not simple there. It's not simple in the least. And especially uh, that song, which I think, is it um, Down in the River to Pray? Is that what song you were thinking of? I think it was, but I'm not sure I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, brothers, come on down, down to the river to pray. Because I think there's a lot of that justification that goes on and rationalization, of course, in these kind of situations. There has to be. Because to consider the annihilation that's being caused, it's anathema, anathema to me. I don't, I don't understand it. But um, really appreciate your drawing our attention to that, that point that exists in the moving towards this kind of <clears throat> effort or behavior and the rationalization that can happen with it. Is that, does it feel like that is, was part of, of your effort in writing this? Tell me again, as what would be, what's the subject there? So just that, that the rationalization of this, this yearning for the power and the glory, the, 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 the vitality that happens with the sense of sex and death and, and the bombing, uh, the, the power that's inherent with that, and the rationalization that has to necessarily occur when pulled in that direction, when engaging in those kinds of, of behavior that produce that kind of vitality. So was it your intention to draw? Oh yeah, I I was you know I'm sort of several personas that show their spots in this poem, but one of them is right at the beginning, the first line of the poem. I got tired of seeing nothing on the newspapers that had anything to do with the kind of mayhem that was going on, and um, just feeling this is intolerable. Yeah, but I I. I don't think I ever was clear about whether I could successfully do it. I could pull the resources together to, to, to do it. So this is another poem that was a long time coming. Mm. Um, certainly months to, to write in sections. Well, I'm, I'm glad it came out. The other thing I found interesting I about this, Chuck, was... Um, the fact that you've got these quatrains throughout, except for the penultimate one. Um, I'm sorry, there are five, five lines, except for the penultimate one, mm -hmm. which is a quatrain. Did you do that intentionally? 
Oh, I wish it could be said yes, but I, <laughs> I think I just wore I wore out. Uh, okay. Well, it's it's lovely, and yeah, thank you for writing this one. One of yeah. the things that I find potent about this poem is that it's not simply a railing against the insanity of war and uh, sort of the masculine exaltation in violence, but it's also an attempt to grapple with the complicity of people who might consider themselves pacifists um, and to really ask, so what, what is there in me as a man that actually, if not contributes to, then at least identifies with or quietly celebrates or appreciates um, the spectacle of this violence and the knowledge of it. Uh, and for me, that's what makes it uh, a poem that's worth coming back to because it is painfully honest in that way. It is, and reminds me, makes me reflect back to those days after September 11th, 2001, where I was just absolutely shocked that there was so much celebration on the part of many people I knew. Not celebration, I'm sorry, but revenge. There was a, there was a, a, an enormous amount of vengeful, violent behavior that went on, which is kind of goes hand in hand with with what's going on in this poem. Um, now I think we have a few minutes left and um, clearly your poems don't rest on simple truths. Um, the ordinary beauty, family, love, they're all interrogated in uh, their multiple aspects. So I'd like to end, if we can, on the final poem. Uh, this is from your first book. Again, another one from your first book, The Only Cure I Know, published in 1991. And would you read this one for us, Chuck? Yes. It's called The Frog Prince in September. I rouse and dream at waterline. Those royal frogs of the tropics scan two realms at once, above and below. But I have simple eyes and inhabit one world at a time. Up there, mottled cottonwood, its first gold about to tumble. Below, black muck, where I'll settle with the frost to a yearning sleep, I have learned to wait. But let me tell you how close the breath of happiness eddied one evening when the June sun sank. The heat was thick, of course, fat dragonflies crinkling past, still air in gulps, and that old longing to leap from the pool straight into heaven the arms of the one who will not flinch. This was not the year. Though it almost was, I was summer for her, the walker who came needing something, the marker, perhaps, of a season so full it might have been love if the right one had appeared. 
as it was, my grating song must have led her outdoors, up the dirt path between rocks to this bank. She stopped, as I did, and looked down. I never, I no longer blame her. Even in that forgiving amber light, who had been so close to dark water, the stranger? Not a touch. So a grunt, my best leap, a splash far out, and she turned, startled, but pleased, I think, toward the house, holding herself shyly, as if seen by someone who knew her well. What should I have done? This is such a great little poem, of course, um, a spin on the uh, the Grimm's fairy tale, uh, The Frog Prince, which uh, was, that was originally published, I think, in 1812. And, and it, was a, it was a frog prince, was it not? It was a frog prince, absolutely. And uh, you don't, uh, this is conversational, and um, there's no transmutation here. This frog doesn't turn into a prince, so... Or maybe is a prince to begin with. I'm not sure, um, but considering the the muck below uh, and the cotton weeds above, it seems to very clearly be the frog. Um, but what I enjoyed about this one is that it's it's four stanzas of of five lines, a quintain, and each of those five stanzas, four stanzas, ends with a a five syllable short little line. So that's a really lovely way that you've highlighted these particular statements. I have learned to wait. This was not the year. She stopped and looked down. And the last one, what should I have done? Which... Thank you for noticing something that I have forgotten. I come to this the poem, uh, the ends of those stanzas, um, with an ear open to the rhythm. And so what I was doing was, I can't even remember the names of those um, scansion things where they have, oh dear, I can't remember. But anyway, I, I didn't come to it so much by the meaning of the words as I did by the sound of the words. I wanted to have five punctuated emphatic words. What's, what is that called? I don't know. You 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 got me there. We'll both have to look it up. Yeah, we'll. Yeah, but the other thing that is well, this is true throughout your poetry. I think is your use of syntax too. Um, up there, mottled cottonwood, its first gold about to tumble below black muck, where I'll settle with the frost to a yearning sleep. That could have been said in the most banal kind of way, but it wasn't. So, and you do that throughout, you know, masterful sense of syntax that you use to subvert meaning or emphasize meaning. So, and this again, this poem again has something of Jeffers in it. For some reason, I went to the deer lay down their bones, that poem by Jeffers, and um, there was some resonance there for me. So, uh, Really so lovely, this one. Thank you, Chuck.
so much. Um, and I think that's all we're probably going to have time for today. I know you had brought in a Robert Haas poem, which I love. Um, and I, I suggest that our listeners go to that on their own. It's called Privilege of Being. And it's a, a beautiful poem on, again, this complexity of what our expectations are versus what reality can deliver. So thank you for bringing that poem. And thank you so much for being here today. I really have enjoyed it. And likewise, here. So you have been listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. Thank you for joining us in our conversation with poet Charles Atkinson and his wife, Sarah Rabkin, also a writer and a teacher. Be sure to follow the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen anytime. And go to hivepoetry.org and subscribe to our three times a year newsletter. Thanks again for joining us. Mm -hmm.